Every day, 130 Americans die from opioid overdose. Some of us are in invisible prisons today, even as we try to appear free. Sales of alcoholic beverages are up 55% compared to a year ago. I believe God's going to set you free. Welcome, friends, to another episode here, the Recovering Reality Podcast. I have a new friend with me today, Christina Dennis. How are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. Oh, you are very welcome. You're, you're, you're coming to us from where my journey started, Southern California. Mm-hmm. Oslo mm-hmm. South. So I, I started out in well, San Diego, but Oceanside. City. Sure. Was actually yeah. where it, where it all began. Not too far from me. I'm between yes. Huntington Beach and Newport Beach, in a little less known town called Costa Mesa. So yes, a little less known, but I know it. I know right where you're at. It's, it's nice up there. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Twenty four years of recovery. Yes. In interventionist and a coach. Yep. And involved in some some pretty cool things right now, and and starting some and. Quite the story. Oh, thank Quite you. Quite the story. Yes, we we've been able to chat, and I was uh, you were telling me a little a little bit of it last time we talked, and um, I never get tired of hearing what people have overcome. Right. Because I, I believe it's the experience is the best teacher. Absolutely. And uh, head knowledge is great. It's usually just a very common sense starting point, but. I think we just really learn by doing. And you've learned a few things. You've done a few things in your journey. Thank you. And I've also had a lot of people help me who have taught mm-hmm. me things. You know, that's one of the reasons why I stay close to this community because it was given to me. And it, and honestly, it is so important to me to take what, you know, was I, I shared with you that my life verse is Genesis, Genesis 50, 20. And, and, Yes, fifty twenty. I got a little confused. No, but it's, you're good. You know, basically, it's what you know was meant for evil. God used for good to save many lives, and that keeps me going. That keeps me going because that's exactly that sums up the experiences that I've had. What the enemy wanted to take away from me, God took, kept, kept me safe, and also let me stand here today and tell the story. It's powerful. It's, I can relate in many, many ways. And I, and I love that you bring up at the start, you know, how many people have helped you. Cause I can, right. man, I can think back even long before I was, before I was finally ready. Right. People just helped me. And I mean, gosh, in, in Oceanside, some, some friends of mine let me live at their house for a month for free while I found a job. And then I ended up, and that was, I was like, I don't even know, two weeks sober or something. Right. And uh, I ended up living there for two and a half years. I still talk to them all the time, right. messaging, texting, everything. They're, they're, I love them. I love them. And that was probably a gift to them, Eric. It's a myth that people have to necessarily hit a rock bottom anymore. You know, it's that it's the true love of our friends and family will, plus grace, obviously, from God, but a true love uh, from our friends and family will actually is a better indicator of of whether you stay sober or not. So for any <laughs> friends and family out there that are Good. hearing that you've got to let them suffer, 
that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of evidence showing as an interventionist, there's a lot of evidence that shows that if you have a connected family that can come around you and learn from your experience, there's healing that can happen throughout the entire family, not just the addict. I love that. Okay, so we're going to get into your story, but I, I want to ask, let's talk about that for one second real quick, mm-hmm. shall we? Because I've struggled with it as well. And, and I'm, as I'm sure you have many, many times, we get people come to you with the situation. They're like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And I always tell them, like, you need to tell me what's going on. I need right. to know some history. Like, there's no one size fits all. Just do this and then this will happen. And we're talking about <laughs> right. there's, a, a, there's a family history. Where's the person at? What's going on? How long they've been doing this? There's, there's a lot to it. And I just think that the best model is Jesus. There you and go. And he never did that. He never just let, okay, never. see you later. You know, never. he would he relentlessly pursues us. And if we intentionally tell him to get out of here, we'll step to the side, but mm-hmm. he's just waiting for you. He'll come right back as soon as you ask him to. So true. He, he hasn't gone anywhere, but so true. I just, the relentless pursuit, the relentless love of people is what changes people. That's what God does to people. And so right. I always just look at it like sometimes we might need to step aside and let people deal with the consequences that they created on their own. Of course. By letting them know, I'm right here with you still, but you need to deal with this mess you created. Right. But just see you later, gone. I don't want to talk to you. Come back when you're better. I hear that, maybe not exactly the way I just said it sometimes, but I just, I really struggle with that. I really, really do. Well, it's what's, family- what's your thoughts on that? If the family uses it as a final attempt to get somebody help, they have a consequence because the family member doesn't want to do it. Um, In the model that I've been trained in, as far as a family interventionist, and really we call ourselves facilitators of transition, because as many people may, I mean, many people may not know that alcoholic or addict may be the one who's using, but usually there is grief and family systems that don't serve anybody in the family. So So if the family has gotten together and tried and shown up and done the intervention multiple times, they may need to excuse that person from their life because it's too painful. But that just means for that moment, let the person do what they need to do. Give them the dignity of choice. Most of the time, that's the most um, uh, motivating aspect of an addict. You know, it's a misdemeanor to think that addicts don't aren't connected to their families. Actually, many active addicts talk to their families daily. It's really interesting. But if you as a family say, okay, there's going to be a consequence to this, i.e. I'm going to cut off the money, I'm not going to save you, I'm going to let you live with your own consequences, then in that case, I think it's perfectly fine. But always letting the addict know the minute you want help, I'm back in your life. And we as a family are going to do everything. We are going to go to support meetings for ourselves, And we're going to figure out because it's not just an individual's problem. It is a family problem. And there's actual evidence that shows if you go back five generations, you can actually see where a family member basically sacrificed themselves because of some serious grief. And they sacrificed themselves to to take the family's um, uh, focus off that grief that they couldn't handle and put it on themselves as the addict. 
they let themselves be the sick one because that helps the family. And so when I work with families and they realize that, it may be the best thing, like my life first, that ever happened to the family was that we needed to get Joey sober. That's awesome. I love what you said too. And that was my experience. My, my family finally kind of cut me off. I mean, every time I called, they answered. They never, mm-hmm. I wasn't ever not welcome on holidays or whatnot. It wasn't anything like that, but it was just like, we're not helping you anymore mm-hmm. unless it's you saying you want help. Right. And finally didn't make that call and they helped. Beautiful. And that journey started uh, 2009. That's mm-hmm. so good. Yeah. Bravo to your family. Oh, I, uh, my family's amazing. My mom was on the podcast. We had oh, a great wow. conversation. We had a great conversation laughing at me from years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those. Yes. Yes. Got to be able to laugh now. It'll drive us nuts, right? Yeah. We addicts laugh at some things that people are like astonished that we can have a sense of humor about it, but. It's so true. I saw an Instagram thing last night, a meme or whatever. And it was, I don't know, some cartoon character like looked like they were laughing hysterically. And then the, the caption says something like, this is me laughing in a meeting at a completely inappropriate time when no one right. else is laughing. Right. And it's like, you don't, you don't get that unless you've been through, lived through some real, real tangible hell on earth. Absolutely. And then you've come out the other side of freedom and you hear some of that stuff and you're just like, oh yeah. That was me. Yeah, I, I did, did that. that. <laughs> yeah. I don't really want to remember it, but I did do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so let's hear a little bit about it. I, I, I love the stories. Um, tell, us, tell us a little bit about what it was like for you uh, growing up and, sure. and what kind of what led you into the, the madness of addiction. Right. Well, I, I was raised by two people um, who didn't, care for me. My, my parents really, really, uh, they were, they were sick. They had probably been affected by alcoholism, but they were teetotalers. And the focus on me was so stark that strangers or people new to our family would come up and pull me aside and say, I'm really sorry. They favor your younger sister so much. Like, I don't even know what to say. And, um, and it was hard. My father had died when I was 14. And uh, my mother at that time really went into her mental illness. She was mentally ill. She was schizophrenic and bipolar. And although there was plenty of monetary uh, resource, there was plenty of access to money for her. The, the way that we lived, uh, me and my sister, uh, was, was really not the way you raise children. You know, there was no safety. There was no security. I have a history of both physical and mental abuse as well as sexual abuse. And I was absolutely treated as if I was not wanted and I knew it. And uh, after my father passed and my mother went into this mental illness, I finally had a quote older brother pull me aside. She had left me at a shopping mall that was about 10 miles from our home (laughs) to teach me a lesson not to leave her side. I mean, it was just weird things like that. You know, I was 16 years old. You got left somewhere on your own to get taught not to leave. 
Exactly. <laughs> and there you go. That's the mind of somebody who, who struggles, right, with mental illness. And I, you know, ended up having to find somebody to come pick me up. And I was crying and on the phone. And this is not the first time something like that had happened. I had had all this really weird abuse. And she would just go into her depressive mode and lash out, you know, try to kill us. Wow. And, you know, I had to be a grown up. And finally, my older brother said, I said, why does she hate me so much? I know she's angry at all of you. you. We all have gone through it, but she really hates me. And he said, that's because she's not your mother. She's your grandmother. And I didn't quite know how to understand that. Uh, said, how old were you? 16. 16, wow. So <clears throat> I, I was really confused. I said, well, then who's my mother? You know, like I couldn't understand. And he said, you're Michaelin. And Michaelin was my oldest sister. She was 21 years older than me. And she was his older sister by a couple of years. So he was old enough to know when, I, when she had me and that they had decided to hide the fact that their daughter had become pregnant, unwed, and they would raise me as their child. And these are my grandparents. So it was a shock to the system in many ways. I'd say goodness, <laughs> Every, at 16 to find out your older sister's your mom and your parents are your grandparents. That would be, uh, I don't I mean, earth shattering, but I don't yes. even know if that's a good enough description. Well, in, you know, every brother and sister that I had, because I had two brothers and two sisters, they were my aunts and uncles. And that included the younger girl in our family, Kara. She had been born a year, a year, two months after me. No, one year, less than a year. And so it was really weird timing. But of course, you don't know what you don't know. Somebody tells you they're your parent, you believe them, of course, because of you don't course. understand. And, uh, you know, I even remember one time when I was in fourth or fifth grade, seeing a picture of my mother in the childhood photo albums, you know, that parents keep. And it was the spitting image of me. And I remember running upstairs to, you know, my grandparents that and say, oh, my gosh, I'm not adopted. I look like someone. I look just like Michaelin. And them not saying a word, of course. Apparently, wow. my grandfather had told my grandmother that if she ever told me he would kill her. And I never, I mean, my grandfather was the perpetrator in my, in my sexual abuse. So there's so much that I will never understand, but I can tell you that uh, being an addict was pretty much a life-saving event for me at first, because I was a pretty, pretty rule follower. I've been raised in the church. Um, I, of course I was angry at God, but I made it through high school at 17 and moved out. And I moved out because my grandmother, who I still call mom, <laughs> said, I don't want you to live here anymore. And this is a pattern that she did all the time. And by that time, because I was an adult enough, I was able to move out on a double date. I had a civil standby <laughs> with police officers. They gave me 30 minutes to grab everything I own, which I did because she wouldn't let me in the house. And uh, I moved out and started my life, you know, supporting myself 100% with all of the rent and the different things that you have to do. And so I worked, I worked to support myself. And I had this huge hole of confusion and sadness. And I had a nervous system that was shot because I had been raised in this abusive home. Um, so yeah, did constantly on fight or flight, constant exactly. adrenaline, constant cortisol, fear, and just that's, 
I'll say this real quick, you know, and, and I'm sure you'll, you'll understand this just as well or better than me, but we just never, you know, it's, it's easy to sit back from a distance and see somebody who's struggling, mm-hmm. see somebody who's gone through some things and has some issues and why can't they get it? But, you know, it, until you get closer and establish relationship and understand what it is they've been through, you have no right to say anything. Right. Until we get closer and understand what they've been through, because oftentimes when you get closer and understand any judgment you did have melts away and it turns immediately to compassion and trying Absolutely. to understand and help because um, you've probably heard them too. I just, you know, I, I know people who it was their uncle that put a needle in their arm. When they were nine years old. Right. And then they're 18 and they got a mess of problems. And we just want to sit back here and be like, why don't you get it? Why don't you change? Yes. Yeah. Well, what would your life look like if your uncle put a needle in your arm? Nine years old. Yeah. It was my solution. Alcohol mm-hmm. made me not feel. And if I had not found it and I didn't start drinking till I was late till I was 21. And that was because I was a, uh, involved with a man who owned very many restaurants. We were engaged because of course I just ran into anyone, you know, that I could find. He was 24 years older than me. You can fill in the blanks as far as wanting a second father or wanting a father at all. And it was illegal to drink in the town that I lived in, obviously until I was 21. And that was the reason why I never picked up. But the day I picked up, I found a solution to that. Is your first drink on your on your 21st birthday? No, I had had a few drinks just in, in, in your old town. Cor- the Coronado in San Diego. Okay. And yeah, that's yeah. where I was staying. And it was the, I, I remember exactly. They talk about it um, because I, I got sober through the 12 steps, but they talk about it in the big book, that phenomena of craving. I experienced that right off the bat. So prior to that, I was just a ball of nerves. I couldn't breathe. I had health problems. I was an overachiever. I was working insane hours. I had found another family system in the restaurant business where I would be treated a little bit better than I had been treated, but it was still abusive. You know, it was, you were expected to work 70 hours, 80 hours a week. You were expected to look great doing it. It was very interesting. I worked in the restaurants for about eight years. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of moving. That's a lot of thinking. Yes, it is. (laughs) And you can see how the abusive family system can, can take over in that situation. And this is something that I learned, you know, for a long time, I made my employers, my parents, you know, until I really started working through it and realizing they, they can't be my parents. Yeah. Wow. And, and we talked. And so I know a little bit about your story. Mm-hmm. Little spoiler alert, but your drinking didn't last a super long time. No. So, so how bad did it get? And how does somebody who only drinks for a short amount of time realize that they need recovery? Well, I, I believe it's God's grace to tell you the truth. But no, I was drinking heavily. Um, in fact, I was drinking heavily by the, the first drink. You know, by the time I had to wait another month from having my first drink where I felt that... <sighs> for the first time. And I was craving it and I waited and waited and waited. And then the minute I turned 21, I started a nightly drinking career. I was in the restaurant business. I didn't have to pay for it. So, and and if I got too drunk to drive, which was probably every night, but if I got too, really too drunk to drive, 
a valet would drive me home. So I didn't have the consequences. Um, fast forward six years, I later I'm needing to have at least seven drinks a night to go to sleep. And as you know, from neurobiology, that is even real sleep. You know, that is even really good REM sleep. It's passing out. And if I was truly having fun, this is what I would call it in quotes, fun, I would drink up to 25 cocktails. And so my doctor could see from my, I know, could see from my liver that I was drinking too much. And he pointed it out to me and he said, this is really unusual because usually that's um, because people are drinking too much. And that's how he told me. And I thought it was a joke. I remember telling people, my doctor's so dumb. He thinks he, he was probably trying to tell me you're in trouble. And that's why we have to keep talking about this because doctors have to be able to confront patients and say, Hey, you don't get this liver enzyme like this, unless you're drinking this much alcohol on a consistent basis. But there's so much shame around addiction that we don't Mm -hmm. talk about it enough. You know, that is the facts. And my guess is you were a blackout drinker. Many times. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and the, the demoralization of the actions I took, the people, oh you know, gosh. allowing people to uh, have me, you know, that I, I wouldn't even talk to sometimes during the day. Like I wouldn't have ever been associated with that person. But yes, I drank, I drank so heavily that if you went to the liquor store and bought, you know, different types of beers, because I had, I rented a big home with two other roommates, he would, the the actual liquor store owner would look up and say, you must be going to Christie's house. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so yeah, I, I there yeah, was no I, denying. I remember waking up in jail, not knowing how I got there. Right. I remember the other side of town in a different house and different bed with, with 15 missed phone calls and never ending text messages like asking you what was your problem last night and i'm like mm-hmm. uh oh i don't know mm-hmm. tell me cuz i honestly remember none of it i don't remember mm-hmm. one single thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i don't miss That's that <laughs> the frightening i mean even if if i've had anesthesia um for a procedure or something i can wake up and the first few thoughts bring me back to what it felt like when you didn't when you lost time that's what i would call it losing time and the terror can still show up and then i have to remind myself oh that's right this was on purpose this is because you needed to you know have a colonoscopy or something sexy like that <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah those are great yeah so where where did recovery enter on the scene i mean clearly it doesn't take rocket scientists to be in that spot and be like maybe i have a problem right but i didn't have anybody around me in the hotel business because by that time i'd started running hotels i didn't have anybody around me who didn't drink like i did you know so it was still easy for me to be in denial but uh i had a through i threw a big party and i blacked out and when i woke up the next day the terror do you remember this feeling, the terror of having to work a shift and wait until, you know, 10 o'clock or midnight, you know, to have your first drink was so much for me that I couldn't get out of bed. And I, I usually just wouldn't go to work. <laughs> and if I did, I just probably was pale and just, you could probably smell vodka in my sweat. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I Bad. remember being in the security office with oxygen on, 
so that I could finish my shift. See, the fear of me being homeless because that had happened to me was bigger at this point, thank goodness, than the fear of me not having Mm. a drink. So I would always show up at work and they used to, people used to make fun of it in rehab um, and say, oh, you're the girl who quit drinking because she missed a day of work. But thank God. I mean, that's why I know for sure that you don't have to have the worst bottom to quit drinking. You can get it. And that's what I always tell people. You can get it. You can stop. And I feel like there's a certain amount of awareness about how alcohol really isn't the greatest thing for us to consume, even if you're a normal drinker. And so it's hopefully through podcasts like this and Recovered Life and different things that I'm doing, we can keep presenting that, that it's a perfectly acceptable life, alcohol-free. And when you're in the middle of the disease or, you know, the disorder, whatever, however you look at it, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like I can live life. And that day I decided that it was, um, that it was my job. It was my job that was causing all this angst. And this is going to sound crazy, but you are, uh, you know, that we do crazy things. I called a man. I did a few. (laughs) I called a man that I always knew had a little torch for me. And I negotiated with him that if he made a few changes, I would marry him <laughs> as long as I didn't have to work and could drink. And, you know, he was an alcoholic himself. And so he, he decided that was a good idea, came over and I started to drink again, called into my office to my assistant manager because I had done really well. A lot of alcoholics are very good workers and very successful people. hundred percent. Very yep. smart, very creative, very charismatic. hundred percent. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's why we drink because the world is too painful. We're too aware. And I told this assistant manager, I was not going to ever come back. I quit. I can't do it. And of course he had been at the party and was incredibly angry with me and said, I'm not, I'm not accepting that. I will get somebody to close for you. And I started to drink again. I never drank during the day. It was like a bottom line for me. And the worst thing happened. It didn't take away my terror. It stopped working. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I like, you were alluding to it a second ago, this thing about like, you don't have to hit rock bottom. Right. You know, this, I hear people say it all the time, you know, like you got to let them hit rock bottom and, you know, you're, you're probably going to relapse. And mm-hmm. I hear this language all the time and, and, some of it is, is warranted and I get it. And, but, but at the same time, I don't feel like that language helps. It just no. doesn't. Cause you don't No, you don't have to relapse. I never know. You don't have to destroy your life before you wake up. It's really, really simple. Rock bottom is wherever you decide to stop digging. Right. And so I know, I know people who were close to, or just as bad as me in high school Yes. and stopped in high school. Right. People say, Oh, well, they really weren't addict and alcoholic. I'm like, yeah, maybe, but I don't know. I was sitting next to him for a couple of years doing it. I'm pretty sure. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, the neurobiology just, no, is undeniable. Mm-hmm. If we look at brains, and you and I have a mutual friend, Stacey Danford, that that discusses a lot of it. But if you do the research. Our listeners know her well. She's been yeah. on a few times. Mm-hmm. And that's part of my job as an interventionist is to teach the family about the neurobiology. It's impossible. It's amazing that there aren't more addicts when you understand what alcohol does and the dopamine effect 
and the, you know, the things that happen after, you know, how your body always wants to bring you to homeostasis. So you have this huge amount of dopamine and it says, nope, I'm going to throw in the drugs that settle you down. And then all of a sudden you're lower than you were to begin with. So what's the one solution? Well, your brain is smart. It knows alcohol. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is, man. It's... Well, so let's jump back in. So, so for lack of a better way to say it, you, you sort of conducted a business deal to get married. Yes. And then I started drinking because that gave me, whew, my bills will get paid, you know, mm-hmm. and I started drinking and it didn't work. It didn't work. My terror was still it stopped with me. working. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I am so grateful that it stopped working because otherwise I might've kept drinking. And I got dressed the next morning and went into work uh, for a normal shift. And I, and I had, you know, I had been raised in the church. I had, I knew difference between right and wrong. And I was confused about my behaviors because I didn't want to overdrink. Every time I took a drink, I didn't want to become that person. You know, I didn't want to wake up with strangers next to me. I didn't want any of that. I didn't want to be embarrassed and have people have fights and all of that. It was, it was scary, you know. And, and that's uh, a real torture. It's like a portable prison. Yes. To never want to do it, but not be able to stop. Do- I know exactly what that's like. Right. I don't want to do this, but I'm yeah. going to do it. And you hear it when people say, well, you know, the key is to drink a glass of water in between every drink. And the key <laughs> is to eat something before you do it. And the key is, you know, always trying to control your drinking as an alcoholic is another kind of hell. I thought the key was I, I used to drink whiskey and that uh-huh. was dark. Sure. So I was like, well, if I just switch to something light, like vodka. then oh <laughs> yeah. But I just I was acting dark because the liquor is dark. If I switch to a light liquor, it, I'll be more light. <laughs> I I literally, it. that was my reasoning that got me to start drinking vodka, I which maybe it. was a blessing in disguise because it sped up the demise. <laughs> <laughs> I just adore that. I mean, because that's our thinking and our brain can't do better. We don't have access to our prefrontal cortex. And, and you know, the other option for me, the other option was to, to kill myself. I mean, literally to off myself. And so I feel like God's grace entered because I went in and I told our boss, um, you know, I was a manager and we had a director. I hadn't made it to director level. And I said, I have a drinking problem and I don't really have any idea. I mean, I was probably incredibly hungover um, and feeling awful and feeling so much shame. And I I remember the man's name, Rich Grant. And he said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I never even occurred to me that it would be hard. As strange as that sounds, like I didn't even know how to begin. So if you're confused about your drinking, if you're, if you're confused about your drinking and don't want that label alcoholic, don't worry about it. You can just start with one day, like it will get better. And, you know, if you're a family around an ad- addict, don't worry about whether they get it or they understand they don't need to. I didn't. And he said, well, you don't have to do it alone. Cause I said, well, I guess I'll quit drinking. I don't know. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> It was my first time I admitted it. And he said, um, he said, no, you don't have to do it alone. And I'm like, okay, all right. What do I do? And he walked So yeah, me. so now what? <laughs> yeah, all right. I didn't even know that. And he walked me into uh, the HR office and they had an employee assistance program. I'm living proof that EPAs work, um, that you can get sober from missing a day of work. 
And she entered, she made some calls. They suggested that she send me home. She said, someone's going to call you. I was ashamed, but I was relieved and went home. And these people started calling me and saying, tell us about your drinking. And I would say exactly what I told you. I need seven to sleep. And I, and if I'm really drinking, it'll be about 24, 25. And of course the person probably on the other side was holy moly, <laughs> you know, she needs help now stat. I mean, I don't know how alcohol poisoning didn't happen to me um, or lethal alcohol poisoning. And so um, they made an appointment for me to meet with somebody and they said, go to work tomorrow and just don't drink. And I remember thinking, okay, why are you guys all acting like drinking such a big deal? You know, like, why are you guys had, making a big deal out of me having 25 drinks? Exactly. <laughs> I was confused. I was like, okay, I won't. And it was hard for a little while. I mean, it was hard, but I didn't do it. And I ended up meeting with a woman uh, in an outpatient, a lovely angel who had had 12, who had 12 years of sobriety. And she told me about, she told me my story. And it was the first time about how you, you were always on the line for performing. You were always the one getting everybody together. You were responsible for everything. And she basically told me my codependent story, which is what I treated with alcohol. And she looked at me and she said, we're going to get you well you're not alone. And I was like, okay. And I just knew that she was like me. And if she had 12 years of sobriety, and I remember asking all the questions, does this mean I won't drink forever? Does this mean people know I'm an alcoholic? What would you think? And I remember her saying, if I had seen you out in public, I probably would have worried about the amount that you were drinking and hope that that wasn't a nightly thing or a weekly thing. My best friend who I adore, I told her that I was going to go into you know, outpatient and start working on it. And she said, Christina, you're not an alcoholic. I mean, people are scared of it and they need not be because it is an amazing life, right? Whenever you're no longer imprisoned to the addiction um, and to the substance and you don't wake up losing time and you don't wake up you know, wondering what you did the night before. It's like you have a chance. Oh my goodness. <clears throat> it's so true. And I mean, you know, it's it's the first, the very first step. It's like you can't get rid of a problem if you're pretending it's not there. Right. Or if you know it's there but are avoiding. I, I tell people if if you think that's possible, just try it with a bill that you owe. Just pretend yeah. it's not there. Let me know yes. how it works out for you. <laughs> not only not only is it gonna stay, it's gonna collect interest right. on the problems. In right. your life. And, and that's what it does, right? Alcohol does that. That's exactly what it does. And, and I, I like what you said too, because that was a big thing for me early on was I had seen a friend get clean and sober through 12 steps and mm -hmm. he was just as bad or worse than me. So I knew it was possible, but I had no idea how to do it or what to do. Or, um, but so many of us, we live in this space where we have it all figured out. I don't need help. I'm good. Mm -hmm. I know how to do this. Clearly, we don't. Life is a disaster. But asking for help for a problem that you know you have and having literally zero understanding of how to bring mm -hmm. about the solution, that is intensely humbling. Yes. Because you really have to step into a place of saying, I need help. I have no idea what to do. You have to trust people. Right. You, you have to learn how to live very uncomfortable and very vulnerable. Yep. It, it, it gets much, much better, as we know. But that's, that's a 
that's a crazy reality to have to swallow early on. And I can, I can really relate to the way you describe that. Cause I actually, I probably put it off for longer because of that reality. Right. In the back of my head, I'm like, this is definitely a problem. I need help. At least I have a general idea of where to go for help. But if I do that, they're going to think I don't have my life figured out. Right. When they already all knew it anyways. <laughs> they knew They knew it. Well, a lot of people I hung out with, you know, it, there was a true transformation in my life. You know, I ended up changing careers after a certain amount of time, went into more of a director sales versus ops. And, and I actually did what, you know, technically we're not supposed to do, but it was definitely God opening the door. Um, first, I started attending to outpatient. And I had once a week counseling with her and we had class on Tuesday and Thursday and I didn't pick up no matter what. And I did the homework, like diligently did the homework. I didn't, to give you an idea where my brain was, where my mind was, I still had not heard of AA meetings in outpatient. And obviously they talked about it. <laughs> but I was, hearing. Yes, but I was almost 90 days sober before I even went to my first meeting. And isn't that like, I I remember her saying, you know, you didn't have to pay money to come here. You could have gotten it for free. And I I don't know if this is necessary. And remember, this is 25 years ago. So (laughs) we didn't have as much of an understanding. I didn't know recovery coaching was possible. If I had known, then that might've been the route that I took because I know it's incredibly helpful now. But Mm -hmm. back then she said, you have to do five things, pray, read the big book, don't drink, go to meetings and tell the truth. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I was confused. Like, all right. So later the next day I called this outpatient director and said, Jeanette, you said about meetings. What are these meetings you're talking about? (laughs) And she laughed. She was like, you haven't been to a meeting? No, no. I don't even know what this is. And a secret handshake or something. Or where where are these secret meetings you're talking about? And, you know, that my relationship with God had been definitely affected by my alcoholism. My grandmother um, used religion as a way to abuse. And so the God that I knew was scary and punitive and punishing. Those are the same words. But, you know, it was a frightening person up there taking, you know, the, 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 uh, the tally of my deeds every day. And I was never going to measure up. Because that God said that I was supposed to love my father and my mother no matter what. And they wanted to kill me. And so when I went to my first group meeting, they don't talk about God there, but God is all over the 12 steps, all over it. It is 12 steps. It is. Yes, Mm -hmm. it is the spiritual technology. And it came from God, period. Mm -hmm. There's no way men, you know, those men came up with this on their own. They borrowed and you and I have talked about the Oxford group and where it comes from. And so I'll I'll say this quickly. My my listeners have heard, heard me share about this, but I mean, the steps came directly from a pastor, Reverend Shoemaker. He was the pastor of Calvary church in in New York. You can read old history from Bill and Bob, and they talk directly about basically I'm, I'm paraphrasing. There's a quote from Bill W that basically just says like AA would not exist if it wasn't for Reverend Shoemaker. Oh, that, yeah. See, I think that's very interesting that people need to, to know that. And I like the fact that AA doesn't limit it just to God so that people can get in the door and at least get sober. But my story is very much 
AA, you know, God brought me to AA and AA brought me to God. Yeah. And it's very, very true because now I, I have that. a relationship mm-hmm. with God. So yeah, it's powerful. No, I, I can definitely relate to that too. AA, uh, spiritual kindergarten. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I needed it really, really simplified. Same. And I did not have uh, a good experience with religion when I was younger mm-hmm. either. Um, you know, we're not all here to compare or whatnot, but it was not even comparable to your, mm-hmm. to your story. Um, but I, I didn't have, and when I came into it too, I, I'd had some very powerful encounters with God when I was young. So there was no issue with me believing there was a God, but right. I was confused. I didn't mm-hmm. want anything to do with religion. I just kind of defaulted to Jesus. Mm-hmm. I was like, I really like him. Let's mm-hmm. just, I want to get to know him. Right. And obviously my life changed very, very, very quickly, but I can really relate to what you're talking about. I, AA, God kind of drug me into AA mm-hmm. <laughs> and I needed things really, really simplified. Uh, mm-hmm. And then AA really showed me the foundational principles of what, what re- relationship looks like. That's right. Relationship. Mm-hmm. I have a relationship and mm-hmm. I didn't have that beforehand. And, and, and it's helped me so much because as you can imagine, 24 years of living life on life's terms, that's a phrase that we get from the big book. It, it, things have been difficult, you know, but I know why I'm here. I know what my purpose is. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pausing for a moment because I'm thinking about for sake of time, but maybe mm-hmm. if you will, because we could probably, and maybe we will have an in whole another episode on this. Absolutely, anytime. But maybe just talk a little bit about some of the struggles you have been through in recovery and stayed sober. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, the biggest heartache and the biggest joy of my life came when I uh, was married with my son. He was two years old and I got the diagnosis of autism. And I was so angry, so angry because I was seven years sober at that point and I was doing the deal, attending church, um, had a good job, got married, had a baby in the right order, had a home, you know, had a 401ks, still a little confused, right? Still kind of thought I was God and, and didn't Still know. learning, still growing. Yeah. And but so- But experiencing the promises- experiencing the promises. And that's what I thought my son would be. And it is an interesting life to have the literally the most precious thing that ever happened to you be wrapped up into one of the hardest things that you'll ever have to deal with. It is incredibly tension filled and confusing. And those first 10 years, my son is 17. Now those first 10 years were terror all over again about how I could help him. He was, he is uh, High support needs is the way we would say it. Um, and beautiful soul, like I said, the love of my life. Um, but he, he absolutely needed assistance. And, I, and in that community, the special needs community, uh, it is very vap- rampant that moms are having mommy juice all afternoon. You know, it's the wine, you know, wine o'clock. And how do you even get through this without drinking? And the vino flytrap, yes, my friend calls it. <laughs> yes. And I can tell you that through the program, 
you know, which is amazing through the community, I should say, of recovery. I knew of a mom who um, had a grandchild who had been diagnosed and I went straight to her. And just knowing that I had that community and because there are times that you don't sleep, it's really, really hard. And, you know, I'd be happy to share at another time about all of the ups and downs. But if I was ever going to drink, it would have been at that time. And I just knew that if I picked it up, that I wouldn't stop. And my son needed me. And so again, we're going to dispel the myth that you can't get sober for your children. Yes, you can. And you can stay sober. Mm -hmm. And through, you know, 12 step principles and through my relationship with God and other people who had gone through what I was going through, um, I was able to do it. And Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful that I have, because, you know, at 17, He's made it through some of those really, really difficult times that we weren't sure what to do next um, and how to handle it. Um, I'm glad I asked, and you know, we'll, we'll probably have to to do that because you were telling me some of the details of the of the story, and I don't know how much you would want to want to share, you know. But I'll just, for sake of time, I'll say this, you know, it's just because we start doing the right things doesn't mean life just becomes perfect. Not at all. You know, and, and oftentimes I I think sometimes people, we do ourselves a disservice because sometimes we think just if anything bad happens, it means I did something bad. Exactly. And it's just not true. No, it can't, it can be. And we need to look at it with a, with a rightful discerning eye. If the same problems always happening in my life, I probably need to take a look at myself, you know, like, it definitely, we can create our own problems. Absolutely. But just because we're experiencing some things, it doesn't always mean we did it wrong. We create case in point COVID. Mm-hmm. Everybody just went through something right. on some level, our some people world, way worse, yes. you know, but it just, I appreciate you being open and honest about it with your journey, because in that space, it's highly detrimental to start beating yourself up. And I think most people default to that space a little bit and have to navigate it when you're in the midst of whatever the challenge is. But just because we're facing something doesn't always mean it's our fault and we created it. Correct. And there's, mm-hmm. uh, there's some definite confusion in the beginning. You know, that's why I don't know how people um, get through it without God. I really don't. Because, because it's impossible to understand. And I definitely went down the road of, did I eat something wrong? Did I do something when he was in, you know, when I was growing him, did I do this? Why me? Why me? Why me? And then I finally realized why not me? I mean, that we literally know that God does not promise us a life, uh, that without challenges, in fact, quite the opposite is said. And there's a lot of really good promises, but there's also some promises of you're going to face some storms. Right. Right. And I now know that one of the biggest lessons that I had to learn was how to, uh, and I'm going to get very vulnerable, but was how to love my child, even when he wasn't lovable, even when it was really hard, I needed to understand a parent child bond that I didn't experience myself. And so he forced me to look at my stuff and go even deeper into my heart 
and really heal and have compassion for my parents, you know, who didn't know what they were doing. And we didn't even talk about the story about me finding my father. So it is absolute proof. And I am absolute proof that God will always bring you to that place of solution. And it may be painful, but that's an honor. You know, it's an honor for me to become the kind of mom that my son needed me to be. It's not his job to make me happy. It's not his job to make me feel safe, you know, so therefore he doesn't have any problems. It's none of his responsibility. That's my responsibility as his parent. And I really had to work at that. Powerful. Just messed me up. Started getting all teary eyed while you were talking about that. And I'm not ashamed of it because I'll just say this. That's that's what God does for us. Right. I was so unlovable for so long. Right. I slapped everybody in the face with every single action I did. And I and I didn't have I don't have autism. Mm-hmm. I did it without that. And the mess and the madness I created and God always, always, always loved me. Right. Always. Every single time I tried, every single time I showed a mustard seed of Mm -hmm. desire, Mm -hmm. he was right there every single time. Mm -hmm. And he wants us to know that we're valuable, right? That's what we get told. He wants us to know that, you know, that we need to be little children you know, seeking faith. That's what happens. That's the key to, that is a successful life is learning that you are loved and it's Mm -hmm. not self-centeredness because in my case, you turn around and you give it to other people. And my son really did teach me. He taught me my value and he, and he taught me his value. And even though he doesn't, doesn't know he's nonverbal, He can communicate with me and I can look at him and see his entire value, even though he will need to be supported. And I can see that he is love. And that has taught me. Oh, that's powerful. In fact, we barely even skimmed the surface on that. So (laughs) we'll probably have to talk some more about that. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and being vulnerable with your story because you know, a story like yours, we were talking about this a little bit <clears throat> last week, I think it was. Some of us, we, we recover and mm-hmm. God so transforms our life mm-hmm. that we can be so open about the madness of our past. Right. People are like, really? I don't see that with you. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's like, it happened, all of it. And I'm purposely not saying a few things that happened as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all of it happened. <laughs> And it's just, it's just a testament to what God can do with someone that just gets honest and shows mm-hmm. a little desire to get real and change. And he just trans, just turns us into trophies of his, of his grace. Right. It's just incredible. Cause a story like yours, people need to hear it. People, people need to hear like, you have every single reason and excuse in the whole world, the world would say mm-hmm. to just give up poor, pitiful me, victim, drink your life away. Right. Most people, the average person, I dare say, out there would be like, oh, you absolutely, you yes. need a glass of wine right now. Absolutely. Haven't you? No, I you don't. haven't drank actually. for 25 years. Can't you just drink one now? Help mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. And to go through what you've gone through uh, before and even in recovery is just powerful. I appreciate you coming on and sharing it. 
Oh, you're welcome. And I am really grateful that I get to do this. This is the good stuff, being able to share the triumphs and hopefully help somebody know that if they, whether they have a high support needs kid at home, you know, whether they, they don't have any access to their family, like my particular situation, that they can go out and find so much love in this world and through God. Mm -hmm. So you need to write a book. Okay. I'm working I'm, on it actually. I, I believe it. You, you sometimes uh, I'm, I'm about done with my first book. I got another chapter or two. I think we talked about it briefly, but yeah, that's awesome. Sometimes we can say like, ah, everybody's got a book. I don't need to write a book. So there's already a story like mine out there. It's, it's mm -hmm. really not about that at all. It's the, we need more hope out there. Right. You can't have too much hope, you know, That's and you right. never know, you never know how many people are going to read it, find themselves in it and be like, wait a minute, if you can do it, if I can do it. I remember sitting in early AA and I would hear these old grumpy guys with 20 years right. tell their stories. And I'm like, totally judging them. I'm like, wait a minute, this cheese ball can do it. I can do it. <laughs> That's right. That's but right. And our then our stories need to be better. told. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, then we get a little healthier. <laughs> well, oh, it's been great. So, um, why don't you tell people how they could connect with you, follow you, oh, even sure. just plug a little bit about uh, recovered life as well? Absolutely. Well, I my website is my name, Christina Dennis. Um, that's K starts with a K, and I'm sure you'll put something in wherever these this recording lands. And you can follow me there. I have a free face, Facebook, um, also on Instagram. And you can also find me in Recovered Life, which is a wonderful membership. It's totally free to people who are in recovery. And uh, just Google Recovery Life, recoverylife.us, and sign up and become part of that community so that we can all help each other. A ton of free stuff's there and available. Um, as far as working with me, if you hit me up on my website, um, we can have an initial consultation uh, call that is at no charge and see if there's a fit there and if I can assist you in any way. Awesome. Awesome. Follower, hit her up. Uh, appreciate you. Oh, really thank do. You. Thanks for, for coming on. Thank you for having it. Yeah. Enjoy, enjoy the sunshine there. Southern California. You know, there's some things I miss about it. There's some things I really don't miss about it. Sure. There's some things I miss about it. Yeah. Yeah. I've lived here for 25 years. And so I've become accustomed to, that was part of my story that I moved my first year. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you, you do get used to the amount of people in one area. <laughs> but when I first moved here, I was like, what? There's not a parking space at 7-Eleven? Like, I have to wait? I couldn't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> so many people. I don't miss that. I don't nope. miss that. No, not at all. Uh, well, again, thank you. And, and thank you guys for joining us here on another episode of the Recovering Reality Podcast. Thanks for joining us on the Recovering Reality Podcast. If you're looking for more recovery resources to help you in your journey, you can access our YouTube channel, a free ebook, our podcast and blogs through recoveringreality.com. You can also connect with us about recovery coaching, sober companionship, or interventions. And if you're looking for treatment for you or a loved one, you can reach out to a very well-respected treatment center called Banyan Treatment Centers at 866 942 8154.